episode seven is officially here and a bit of a change of pace on this one. If you've listened to the past several episodes, they've skewed pretty heavily towards physical health, which I love, but the principle behind the Momentum podcast is, like I've said many times, taking action towards building an extraordinary life. And physical health is obviously one component that bleeds into other areas, but someone who has successfully applied the principles to an extreme level uh, of momentum that I talk about goes by the name of Ben Jenkins. And if I had to make a short list of just the most impressive people that I know, Ben would be on the list. Ben has had a massively successful run so far in the tech space or the startup kind of space. If you're familiar with startup lingo, people generally get into that space because you can scale a company much bigger and much faster generally than you can scale like a brick and mortar type business. And the end game for a lot of people, the goal when you're founding one of these tech companies is an exit which means some entity comes in and pays generally an exorbitant sum of money to buy your company or you take your company public. And both are very lofty goals for founders to have and they're also very rare for good reason. Most startups fail before ever even earning revenue, never mind profit. But Ben built a profitable tech company that had a successful exit. And so we dug into how he built the company, the hurdles he faced, what it was like being someone, you know, you're in your mid thirties, you've got a wife and a kid and you're going to take a pretty big risk and start a company. What's that like? How did he do it? What was the moment like when he got that phone call and had an opportunity to sell the company? Ben is captivating to listen to. And I think this is something you can take a lot from whether your goal is to launch a startup similarly to what he did or just launch anything at all. But that's enough from me, and I hope you enjoy this interview with Ben Jenkins. So then, can you give, because I think this will be really interesting for people, can you just explain what Done.com was or is? Yep, sure. So uh, when we started Done, I was uh, looking for a handyman service in uh, for my house. And I went through, I think, the first two pages of Google uh, trying to get a price for a very small specific job I needed done. I think I called through, you know, two pages of listings, 90% of the people didn't answer. And uh, those who did answer wanted to give me a price. They wanted to come out and see this, you know, $200 project that I had that I needed to get done. And it made me realize that if, uh, if, if, if it's such a like fragmented, and difficult industry to get pricing on and an industry that uh, everybody needed to come out and see small projects, then uh, there was probably a large opportunity in that space um, that we could start in, uh, you know, with, with handymen specifically, I could do a, a large number of services and, uh, and then grow into other home services in a, in a marketplace model. And so it was, uh, you know, I think our first like uh, thoughts were to make it like amazingly simple to get small jobs done around the house. And so finally, you know, I called some of these handymen and, and got a couple to come over. And I realized really quickly, besides all the things that I already spoke about, that handymen aren't really handymen anymore. They're more like small remodel companies. 
it's almost impossible for them to make money uh, switching out your um, garbage disposal or your uh, or your dishwasher, right? It's a it's a job that doesn't cost much, and uh, it's impossible for them to make money doing that, uh, to acquire customers, to make the visit. And uh, so I, I, I noticed really quickly that most handymen don't want these smaller jobs. So um, the difficulty of booking and servicing and pricing along with there's a number of jobs that handymen just don't really like to do. So it looked like a, a big opportunity for us. So you created, so you're saying they didn't really want to, it, it wasn't, positive for them to set up the time to put the infrastructure in place to find these jobs, source these jobs. So you created the layer between them and the job. Yeah. So first, uh, first we built a matchmaking platform and the, and the thought was, Hey, uh, handymen need to see, you know, home service professionals, contractors like to see jobs before they price it. Okay. So let, let's go along with their normal, their normal model. And so we built a matchmaking service where you as a, as a homeowner could go on, uh, list your project, and then some uh, contractor could claim that project. Um, so it was, it was more like a lead model. And um, it's, it's very difficult to build a lead business, uh, matchmaking business, um, without any sort of scale. Um, it, it's a chicken or an egg problem, right? Like you have, uh, you work to get contractors on the platform and then you get them, uh, uh, homeowners that are wanting to engage with them. And then the contractors are in the field and they don't have time to respond. And then you have homeowners who have not been responded to. And so it was a really broken model. And um, we were bootstrapping the company at the time. And it was difficult for me to, um, advertise for homeowners, keep contractors uh, on the platform. So we had built this one section of code. Uh, we were struggling to build a business. We were nine months in. We had built one section of code that allowed the, the contractor to go set their own pricing, like, a, like an Amazon marketplace model. And so I said, you know what? I'm, I'm a fairly handy guy. Um, I, I grew up with my dad always working on stuff, taught me how to do that. And I said, I'll, I'll just I'll just build myself a handyman platform. I'll put some uh, some pricing on on my uh, on my profile. And so I put you know dishwasher replacement, TV mounting, and lawn mowing. And I had done those things personally. I knew I could do them, do them well. And so I put that on. And then we built some Google Ads uh, here in Austin to go along with the the pricing of that. And uh, like the first three clicks, I booked a, a a garbage disposal replacement job for $79. And uh, I was super pumped, right? Like super pumped up, like, man, like we just got revenue in. So I went and did that job. Everything was successful. Uh, the next day I booked a dishwasher replacement and uh, same thing. I did that job. It was all the way up in Round Rock. So I, you know, I drove probably two hours total time to go replace that dishwasher for a hundred bucks. Um, booked a uh, next job I booked was a, a lawn mowing job. And at this time we would have called, we would, you know, that uh, we would look at that job as like over height because they let the lawn grow up and uh, it was really big. It was an oversized yard. It was, it was booked for 29 bucks. I showed up and uh, it was August in Austin, Texas and showed up with my personal lawnmower and mowed this acre sized lot. And it was August and I was sweating and it was miserable. And at that time we didn't have prepay for services. So that guy never ended up paying me the $29 for that job. And then, so 
at that point I realized I had like people were booking jobs and the, the, the customer acquisition cost was uh, where, you know, it made sense. It made our union economics make sense. So then I started uh, uh, down that path of, uh, you know, instant pricing, instant booking. And uh, we started to recruit specifically handymen for those jobs. Um, we started in Austin, Texas, and uh, through the next month started that process of like just figuring out how the platform worked, booking jobs, sending people out to do work, and it really went smoothly. And so after that first uh, first couple of months, uh, that was we scrapped the lead or matchmaking model and just pursued the uh, the managed service model where uh, we would we would price the job, we would warranty and insure the job. Um, you would pay done.com for the work, you would book done.com, and then we would have a uh, contractor show up um, there for done.com and to do the work, and then you would pay through the done.com platform. And so that was the model that we landed on and that was successful for us. So that for, and this is probably like one of the most annoying questions in the, in, I feel like in the startup world, everything is like the Airbnb of something or the, yeah. the Uber of something, but sure. for the people who have no context for what done.com is, is that a good comparison to some yeah. degree? Like it's. So, yeah, I used to say that we were not the Uber of anything because they had such massive scale, but if you can think of, uh, you know, uh, Uber for handyman services is, is essentially what the model was. It was on-demand home services uh, where we set the pricing and uh, yeah, that's exactly what it would be. So you like, you had a background before this and I know people generally, when you launch a tech company, like you, you launch it because there's an element of scale available to you yep. and you, you generally don't launch it with ambitions to make like 79 bucks driving to Round Rock. Um, but you did that and you're in the early days starting out, like just getting these, you know, tiny jobs, cause you have to figure it out. Like, what was that like where you you started out and you, you have a vision for what it can be, but it's literally like, you're, you're going 50 steps backwards to build something. Yeah, for sure. So I would, uh, um, you know, it, uh, there's the lean startup methodology now, and, uh, there probably was at that time. And there's, you know, there's MVPs, you know, minimum viable product. And so, what the, the biggest mistake that we made is I spent six or eight months building a product uh, before we put it out to consumers. And that was, a, that was a lost period in my time. Now, I taught myself to code really horribly during that time. And so that made me more educated when talking to, to engineers. But um, so it, it wasn't totally wasted time, but as far as like accelerating the business and not just educating myself, it was lost at time, uh, lost time. So, you know, uh, it's really hard for a business to guess what uh, what a consumer is going to purchase, right? And so uh, we had the, I had this vision in my head, and I was like, "Wow, this is the next most innovative thing ever," um, and it wasn't right. And we lost all that time. Um, you know, lost that. You know, up to nine months, I think we were we were just grinding it out, trying to find a way to produce any sort of revenue whatsoever. And you mentioned like, you know, it's a chicken and egg situation because you need contractors to do the jobs, but you need jobs to bring the contractors in um, when you're starting out. And then beyond that, like most people get an idea like this, yeah. uh, whatever it is. And immediately it's like you get excited and then it, you start thinking about how many things have to be done to create something like that, especially in, in a situation like this, where it's like, where do you even start? Um, how, 
did you struggle with that at all? Like getting yourself started or were you just like pulling on your own DNA and just taking one step at a time? Yeah, I, I, uh, so I could, I could visualize what we needed to do. Um, and, um, I'm fairly self-starting on like, uh, businesses. It's, it's, uh, I just had this great passion to go build a, build an amazing business. Right. And so like having that passion behind you, um, we'd had some money saved up, but we didn't have a ton saved up. I was focused primarily on this business. And so, uh, I had a young family, uh, you know, we had a mortgage, so it was, uh, it was really like, uh, you know, I was, I think I was 35 at the time. So it was, uh, this was my third startup. If this startup failed, like it was really like time for me to not play in startups anymore. Right. Like you can't, you can't be 40 years old and, and have nothing but failed startups behind you. So it's, uh, it was do or die for me. It was the last time. And so it really lit this fire in me that if I, if this is what I want to do with my life and this is what I want to do with my career, I have to make this one successful. Did those first few startups, cause I'm guessing they weren't done.coms. Did they not rattle you, but did it, did it, did you question yourself a little bit more coming into the done.com or was it more just like, you know what, I can do it. I just haven't done it yet. You know, so I, I, uh, I, I did something interesting. So uh, I started a, a campus a text message alerts business uh, right around the tech uh, time of the Virginia tech shooting. I remember very vividly the administrator saying uh, this, this was so bad because we couldn't alert anybody on campus. And I'm thinking, you know, everybody has a cell phone on them. And at this time, texting wasn't super prevalent because of the old style uh, digital keyboards. You had to, you know, ABC toggle through the numbers to text. So it wasn't super prevalent, but everybody still got them. And so we started building a, a school alert system. And, and I messed up the pricing model of that business. And, and that's why it failed. But I learned a lot in the business. Um, and then we tried a, another startup after that. That one got a little traction, but it wasn't enough to pay the bills. So I lost my co-founder in that deal. And uh, it just kind of fizzled out. We didn't raise any funding for that. You know, this was like 2005, 2006, 2007. There wasn't a really awesome uh, startup ecosystem anywhere, um, or at least that I found in Austin. And I think getting yourself in an ecosystem with mentors and other people living the same life is super, super important. Um, I got involved with Capital Factory here in Austin, uh, you know, during the done.com days. And there was uh, a lot of awesome things that came out of that. But I had, uh, I had two failed startups. So I went and brought, uh, I said, you know what, I need to teach myself a business. I need to go get an MBA uh, by owning a business. So I, I, I bought a brick and mortar business. Um, we scaled that up to 10 locations. I was able to, uh, I did that in three years. I didn't really like the business that much other than I was running a business and that taught me a lot. And so we were able to sell a few locations. We closed some unperforming, underperforming locations down um, right around the time my first son was born because I didn't want to do that. And I felt like uh, my son being born was a, uh, a milestone in my life and it could allow me to reset. So I, I got out of that business uh, mildly successfully um, and that's when I was looking for something else. I was looking for something in tech. I wanted to go back to my tech days. Um, I wanted, just like you said, I wanted that scale. I wanted that, that national or global reach for customers. Uh, you know, brick and mortar businesses are really capital intensive. 
because you to, to sell anything, you have to have the brick and mortar building. You have to have employees in each location. It's super capital intensive. It's hard to manage uh, multiple locations. Um, so it was like the combination of those, those three businesses that allowed me to, uh, to build done. So the brick and mortar, it was, was it auto repair? Yep. So it, it was auto repair. I bought a tiny little auto repair shop. They were doing $20,000 a month in revenue. And um, we moved the business to a more desirable location in Austin. And uh, I got in that business and, you know, we, we quadrupled revenue or something like that in the first three months. And I'm like, man, this is awesome. And then we took it to, in the first year, we took it to, I think it was like 1.5 million in sales was our first year in sales. And I was like making like money, you know, like I was doing, I was making good money. And I was, you're like your late twenties at this point. Yep. So I was, uh, I was 28 when this started. Wow. So I was making good money. I, uh, I had a, what I thought was like a playbook to like go do this over and over and over again. And so thought, you know, Hey, why don't I go open 10 of these things? And so the, the, the one that was the hardest was the second location. Like basically I had to be like forced to do that through like, uh, making commitments to some employees and other things that I just, I had to, I had to go open that second one, even though I was super scared. And then after that second one was pretty successful, it was also here in Austin. Um, I, I had it in me then I have a model. I I've already got two of these things. So we just started opening, opening stores. And, uh, the, the thing I realized is that, uh, multi-location brick and mortar management is pretty difficult, right? Like you need, you need a decent number of those things to be able to get any sort of scale to have a management layer over all of those businesses. And, uh, we were, we were getting close to that, but there was, uh, there was just things I didn't, I didn't love about the business. Um, you know, it was pretty margin light. It was capital intensive. Uh, we had some managerial problems in some stores. We had some theft in some stores. And so, uh, it just wasn't a business for me and it was never anything I, I got into loving. I just wanted, I, it was a simple business model. Like you make money by fixing cars, right? Like that's pretty straightforward. And uh, it was just something I wanted to teach myself how to how to run a how to run a business, and that um, that's what we did. And you did obviously at a different scale, but you did well doing that. At, you know, by the time, so how old were you when you sold the the last part of it? You know, it was it was probably uh, late 2010. So I was uh, it was three years. Like I was 31. And had you decided to build done? Did you sell it and say I'm going to build done, or were you not sure what you were going to do yet? I wasn't sure what I was going to do, but I knew I wasn't going to do that anymore. Um, I knew I was going into, I was going to go do another tech startup. Um, I didn't know what it was going to be. Um, and then I had this like aha moment of, Hey, we can, we can do a matchmaking service where I, as a consumer, either for an auto repair or for a home repair, I can, uh, I can go online and get a bunch of quotes, just like uh, home advisor or Angie's list is right. Like, and that's, that was kind of the model I went with. Um, ours was going to be different and better, of course, like that's what we thought. And so that was the original model, what we set up to, out to build. It just, uh, we just, we, we, I couldn't make that successful, right? Like it was eating too much cash. People weren't happy on the contractor side, on the consumer side. And so we just followed our wins and went with the managed services model, like the Uber-ish model. So when you, you finish, you're married at this point, you finish off your auto shop business, you're obviously done well for yourself. You sort of have this like life in place. 
And then you hit a point where it's like, Hey wife, I'm going to like, I'm going to finish this and get into the startup world and undoubtedly do something that's going to cost us money. Probably not going to make any in the, in the beginning. What was that transition like from having a kind of a setup, you know, you could probably keep expanding if you want to, you've got the talent to do it. And then you go the other direction where it's like, I'm going to fork over some money to try to build something big. Yep. So I was very much not happy in the auto business. Um, you know, it was something I was not passionate about. I was using it for an education. Um, so I was, I was happy to be out of that business. Certainly scary um, to, to go a different direction, you know, in, in your thirties with, uh, we had our first child, uh, we had a, a, a home mortgage, something that, you know, we had, uh, we were committed to paying. Uh, my wife was, uh, she grew up, uh, surrounded by entrepreneurs. Her, her father's in manufacturing. Her grandfather was a, a big boat dealer. Um, so she's always been super supportive of my entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, probably one of the things that, you know, drew her to me to begin with. So without her support and her, her deciding that was okay. And without her income from her job at that point, like we wouldn't have been able to, I wouldn't have been able to do what I did. Um, it, it wasn't an, uh, it wasn't, she was still working. So it wasn't an all in major bet. Um, obviously there were, there was struggle. I, you know, I went the first 18 months of done without a paycheck, like one until my wife was like, Hey, can you take out something like even our mortgage or something to, you know, supplement the family? It's been almost two years. So, um, yeah, it, it was all about her without her support. Like none of that would have happened never. And it combination of probably her understanding who you are and going, you know, what's the win if you stay doing what you're doing with the auto shops, you're not happy. Like at this point, just taking the shot is better regardless of what happens to some degree. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Other than like uh, being my career being derailed and I'm 40 and you know, not, I don't have any catastrophic to- failure. Yeah. Like yeah. it's uh. Luckily, I don't have to worry about it, but I don't know what like a three-time startup founder failure uh, job opportunities are, but like probably some out there, but no. So what, so you, you launched on, you go through this early phase where you're only operating locally in Austin, um, these small-time jobs. When did you start to get some traction where you realized, wow, we, we, we really have something here? I mean, it was quick. It was, uh, you know, we... Um, our basic uh, avenue or channel to acquire customers was Google AdWords. Um, I'd had some previous experience with that in my auto shops, uh, built out all the campaigns and the advertising for those businesses. It was new and I didn't trust anybody else to do it. So I really like cut my teeth in that business. So this business, it was just uh, using education that I had built up in the previous business. So once we had those first three jobs convert, I then went and uh, I seeded the, the marketplace with, uh, with handyman. I went out there and worked deals with handyman saying, Hey, I'm going to send you four or five jobs a day. Like, will you dedicate to me that you will pick up these jobs? So then I had, I had seeded one side of my marketplace with fulfillment. And I just started building out AdWords campaigns and like pumping through, uh, jobs. And then on the backside, our engineers were, frantically trying to rebuild the entire platform around the new business model that we, we now had and throw away, you know, 90% of the code that they had been working on for the last nine months. And uh, I think our first 
or second month in Austin, I, I used to know this better, but our, our first or second month in Austin, we were at $9,000 in sales. Jeez. And like from nothing to $9,000 in sales profitably was, uh, I mean, it was like winning the Super Bowl for me, you know, it was huge. Um, so then really quickly, I uh, decided, hey, we're going to other markets. I went and hired a, a gentleman who's a really good friend of mine now. His name is Nick Harris. He became a, a co-founder of the company. You know, he was really early and he was second in charge there. And I, uh, he, he had just moved to Houston to be close to his wife here in Austin uh, and needed a job. And I said, hey, I, I got this job. I don't know how long it'll last. I don't know, like, you know, I know we can pay you for a little while. It should be fun. Like I'll buy you some beers every weekend. Like, and you know, you seem fun to work with and you have, you have skill set that I need other, you know, the nuances of the business I can teach you. Like, would you like to come to work? And I got him super drunk before I asked. And uh, he said, yes. So. So then, so what year officially did, was this that Don launched? Uh, so we, we launched in, uh, in 2014, you know, we started working on it. Um, so we worked on it for about a year before that to go through like this stuff that I'm talking about. Yeah. And, and um, we got the, uh, it was, it was a business called, uh, it was a business that was based around quotes. So we had to change the name to done.com. We got that in uh, 20, uh, 23 into 2013, maybe early 2014. I think it was actually February 2014. So it was officially launched then. And you guys scaled up to, from my recollection, I, at one point you were at 35 or so employees when you were still done. Yeah, How so we had, we had 65 team members when we, when we, when we sold the business-ish. Uh, and I think we were in 60 major metro markets across the U.S., and that's obviously thousands of contractors, I'm guessing, right? Yeah, sure. Thousands. 65 paid employees. Yeah. And you guys, and so you start, you really start doing real volume as a business and what happens? So porch comes in, there's an acquisition. Yeah. So uh, it's a funny story around that. Like, uh, you know, we were, uh, there, there wasn't a lot of uh, consumer-based home improvement businesses in Austin in our ecosystem. Uh, at that time. So we were just, we were grinding it out, building a business. Uh, there was a, several hiccups in, in that, uh, several like we're almost going to fail uh, points and all that. And then there, there was just a point in uh, October of 2015, I had reworked all of our AdWords. I got, a, I got some advice from a, a gentleman named Paul O'Brien. He is uh, here in the, the startup ecosystem in Austin. And I was like, man, we're just, we plateaued. I can't like, can't grow these markets anymore. And, and he said, you know, how many, how many keywords do you have in your uh, Google AdWords? And I was like, ah, you know, over these 30 markets or so at the time we were in, I was like, I don't you know, whatever the number was 50,000 or whatever. And he was like, well, that's a major problem right now. Like you need to go look. He was like, I would expect with geo modifiers, like city state, smaller city state in the metro area with the number of services you could provide uh, we were in 167 different service types. He said there should be, you know, 500,000 keywords or something like that. He was like, I don't know how many there should be, but go look at that. So I took his advice. We reconfigured the, the AdWords campaigns and blew out the keywords to like an enormous, enormous number. And uh, we're still very careful about ad spend. It was still things 
that we could convert really well, I felt. It was just a reworking of the that initial set that we had. So, you know, like uh, for example, uh, don't, we didn't advertise for home repair because that's what everybody advertises for that, right? And it's expensive. It doesn't convert well. It's a ton of competitors. We would advertise for like TV mounting Austin, Texas or TV mounting Buda, Texas, you know, really get granular with what we're, what we're trying to do. And so we blew out the keywords and then the business just popped like so much that Nick, who was handling uh, the contractor side of the business, um, had to reconfigure his operations to handle the amount of jobs that we were booking. Like every, you know, frequently uh, day in, day out, he would ask me, hey, please pause the advertising. Like I can't fulfill all these jobs that are coming in. Like, so at that point, we really started to like just scale the business like very rapidly. And, and we kind of found, you know, with the more, the more jobs we had coming in, the more contractors we had working, the smoother everything got right? Like it just, it just, you can feel it. It's just bumpy and nothing's working in this marketplace really smoothly. And then once we reached a certain scale, everything just smoothed out and everything just started working uh, really well based upon the systems that we had put in place. So late, uh, late 2016, we're rocking and rolling, feeling really good about the business. You know, I would, I would have probably sold the business for a hundred thousand uh, dollars in 2015 and, and taking a job, you know, just to call it a success. And, and, uh, and not have a, have a loss there. But 2016 is different. We're like rocking and rolling. Uh, late 2016, Porch, uh, Porch reaches out. Uh, a gentleman named James Lyon, he was in partnerships. Uh, awesome, awesome guy. Um, he was in partnerships and wanted to find out if we would partner with them, if we would, uh, if we would buy home improvement leads from them because they were their base, basic business was a, a handy, uh, was a home advisor competitor at that time. And they, they had figured out how to successfully scale that business. They raised a ton of capital. You know, they were $150 million or something at the time. And they'd really built a, a great lead business, one to sell leads to us. So we, we bought leads from them and, uh, we were sending reports back. Uh, they wanted to sell us handyman leads because nobody wanted to buy handyman leads, right? Like a handyman doesn't want to pay $20 for a hundred dollar job. Uh, but because we could buy these leads nationally, uh, we could, we could eat up a lot of their volume. Uh, so we, we got them for a lot lower cost and, uh, and we were trying to work out a pricing model with them. So we were sharing conversion data back with them and, uh, around the middle of this partnership, you know, we were a few months in this partnership. Our conversion data was pretty good with them. Uh, we were both really, you know, we we're all really happy with the partnership. Um, around that same time, Amazon came out with Amazon Home Services. And, um, you know, you order a TV on Amazon and they're gonna send somebody to install the TV. And this really polarized the retailers in the industry, uh, like Bed Bath & Beyond, Wayfair, and. Um, William and Sonoma brands, all of these retailers that um, for the most part are trying to figure out how to deal with the threat that Amazon is, are saying, oh, now great, like Amazon's going to put together furniture for you and install your TV. And like uh, Jeff Bezos at that time was saying, hey, this is another leg of our stool. You know, everybody looks at, at uh, the total addressable market of home services and it's gigantic. So if anybody can figure out how to crack it, um, it's going to be Amazon. So the retailers are really uh, looking for a solution to combat this with uh, uh, this new threat from Amazon. Porch had the retail relationships. They, you know, James Lyon and, came to us and said, "Hey, we, we've got a we've got a partner, uh, national um, 
retailer that wants uh, somebody to put together furniture for them. Uh, can you guys do this? And I was like, yeah, absolutely we could. So we struck out a partnership with them and uh, to handle that demand that was coming in with our fulfillment systems. So like uh, when somebody orders a couch, you they could use your service to somebody comes in and builds it for them at their house. Yeah, right. right? Like a TV Off, like, from like pottery like, barn. Yeah, like yeah, like a dresser or you know, like you think you think you're going to IKEA and you get this flat pack dresser that takes you six hours to put together. Like I've, yeah. I've been there before, right? And then you then you break a shelf on the last, you know, last 20 minutes, right? Like it's it's horrible. So we could do those things with our systems. Um, those are simple jobs for us because we had been doing far more complicated stuff than that. So we started ingesting this demand and uh, it, it went really well. Our, uh, our, we had a managed model behind the system where if you booked a job, it just didn't go into a, a server somewhere and then somebody just takes it and goes and, no, and nobody sees that. We had, a, we had an entire team that we called project coordinators that were managing the handyman on the, in the background, you know, they would make sure they were showing up on jobs. They would make sure, you know, that the customer was satisfied. They would, uh, it would do any number of things that needed to happen in project management when you book a home improvement job. So because of those project coordinators, our customer satisfaction rate was super high. So everybody at that retail, that major retailer that was using us was really, really happy. And uh, so that kind of started getting, you know, discussed at Porch. Um, it was December, it may have been December or January. I'm, I'm getting old now, so my memory's kind of faded on some of the stuff. De De December or January, probably uh, December 2016, January 2017, uh, Matt Ehrlichman from Porch, the CEO, reaches out and uh, says, hey, I I'm going to be in Austin. I would like to swing by and... Uh, and meet you guys, right? Y'all are doing this this uh, this work for us, and uh, seems like everything's going well. I'd love to meet meet you guys. And then uh, he had, I was like, great. You know, we had a conversation. Sounded like a really awesome guy. Uh, we got along really well. He had his uh, executive assistant reach out to me to schedule times, and she was giving me like multiple options of stuff. And I was like, I don't think he's coming. Like he's not coming to Austin except to see us. And so I started talking to my, now like my really good friend, Nick, who, you know, I had hired back in the day, you know, you go through the startup grind together and, and you become really close. And so um, we're, we're discussing all the possibilities of why the you know, CEO of a company that raised 150 million bucks is going to come see us. And like, this is probably a big deal. So he came down and, and met with us and, uh, Really cool guy. I picked him up in the airport uh, from the airport and brought him back because Uber and Lyft had been kicked out of Austin at that time in, in history. And uh, so I had to go pick him up and drive him back to the office. And we had an office here in Austin. It was super cheap, super old, like class C office space, you know, because it was it was just you know, we, were, we were watching our, our nickels and dimes as much as we could. And I was the thing I was worried about when I met him is our entire staff, except for three guys was remote we would we used everybody was remote except three guys and like it was the three core guys that uh were were in office and uh, everybody else was remote so i was trying to figure out how to explain to him that this company that had you know a decent amount of of team members working for it well there was only three guys in this crappy little office in, in austin and so it took him a minute to wrap his head around the model and what we did, but when when you know you could see it click for him, uh, 
now that I know Matt way, way better, he was thinking about how he could steal that model at that time and implement it into his business. You know, you could just see the wheels turning because this guy's always thinking. And if, if he finds something good, then he's going to use it just like anybody else would that's smart about business. So he came in, showed him everything. He talked about porch. We talked about how we could work together more. And uh, that led to acquisition conversations. So at some point, you get a phone call or a meeting with him where they go, hey, we want to buy you guys. Yeah. So I think it was the next week. And uh, he said, uh, hey, you know, what, what would you think about uh, selling us done and coming, joining us at Porch and continuing to uh, fight this fight of, you know, making home, home ownership easy? And, uh, you know, everything, uh, if the business was going great for us, you know, like, like I said, in 2015, I would have begged for somebody to take it off my hands. Like this is now 2017. We're starting to land major partnerships like Porch. We're crushing it with a major retailer. Uh, so I know that like there's green sky ahead for us. Um, so, you know, I, I see, you know, I, I would love to sell my baby if the money's right. I don't think, uh, I don't think I could turn that future down for my family because um, anything can happen in business, right? And, uh, but we, we have to land on what the business is worth. And so we were, we were bootstrapped. Uh, there was, you know, we built the business with a couple hundred grand. It was actually 185 grand and uh, really built a big business out of that. And, you know, you do that by not taking salaries, uh, hiring, you know, remote engineers and like, you know, you just watch everything that you're doing. And uh, so, you know, I still had a majority of the cap table. It's very meaningful for me. It was meaningful for Nick. And uh we, you know, we started talking numbers and we just landed on numbers that, that made sense for us. Uh, it just de-risked the rest of our life. Was it a, uh, I mean, I'm sure there's a bug of war happening where it's like, do I hold it? And, you know, for a couple more years or do I sell eventually it just hit a point where you're like, this just makes sense. Yeah. I mean, there, there was definitely negotiations going on. Um, and there was, there was a huge struggle. Like I, uh, you know, I broke down in tears one time in front of my family because I just, I didn't want to sell the business. Like I just, uh, I didn't want to, I just didn't want to sell, right? Like it, it uh, this was my baby. I built it and it was, it was successful and it was going somewhere. And, and you know what, like there's, there's so many billions thrown around in the startup world and you just, it really minimizes Anything, anything under a billion bucks is not cool. You know what I mean? I didn't get anything close to that, but like it, you know, you just, you just have this impression that uh, you go on TechCrunch and everything you see is people raising 400 million bucks and like this and that, and, and, and these billion, these businesses are worth $6 billion or, you know, all this stuff that you see. And it really makes, uh, it really makes meaningful money seem insignificant. Right. Does that make sense? Like yeah. talking millions of dollars is nothing like these guys that are making billions. So there, there's a struggle with you wanting to build a really great company and you love the people you work with. And then there's also a struggle of everything you read in tech is, is got to be a B number associated with it. And so you also want to do that, right? Like you want to do what they're doing. Yeah. It's like when you run in those circles too, it, you're surround, you're constantly looking at tech crunch and not seeing all these other companies where it's like, Oh, you sold your company for 750 million. Like that's, that's a joke again, yep. like unless it starts with a B. Um, 
but on this on the scale for 99.99% of people like how you made out is like mind blowing you know yeah and sure. i think a lot of founders even though there's that that aura of like i need to sell for a billion or i didn't make it regardless like a lot of founders and a lot of people if they imagine that moment of of selling their company getting the phone call hey we're, you know this is the price we're going to pay um, it's a huge like people dream about that well, you know what, like, and also it was, it was an edge. It was because I was uneducated about how hard it is to go build a billion dollar business. Uh, Porch is a publicly traded company right now. We took that, that company public in, uh, in December, they got a market cap, you know, somewhere around a, a billion and a half should be higher. They're an amazing company. Um, their, their stock is undervalued right now. So, um, it, it should be better, right? Like, but, um, billion and a half dollar company. I spent three years at Porch after, after uh, my company sold. I joined in an executive role. I ended up uh, being the uh, uh, VP of growth there at Porch. And building a great business, a billion dollar business is extremely, extremely, extremely hard. Now there's guys that like, uh, you know, I, I read the other day that these guys built a, uh, like a, a, a teeth aligned business in three years with no outside funding, sold it for a billion dollars. Like there's, there's outliers. What's that? Like outliers. You can find yeah, outliers. There's definitely outliers. There's, there's like, uh, you, you, you jump on some, you know, it just gets easy, right? Like you take a swing and it just goes out of the park, right? Like there's, there's very, very few of those, but they get a lot of press. So it seems like there's more, um, but to build an actual billion dollar business, it takes hundreds of people uh, committed to doing as much as they can every single day. It takes tons of capital and it, and it takes probably takes years off your life. Even at the scale that you were at, I mean, the sacrifice and I, of course, wasn't even involved, but I remember some of the conversations that we'd have over the years. I remember at one point, like some of the developer, you were teaching yourself to code. It's like that. Like, what do you do when you, you go through that level of sacrifice? You're like mowing somebody's lawn in round rock to making it to where you are. Like, do you, do you go on a vacation? Like, what do you do when you sell the company? Um, you, uh, you get a big head for about 30 days. I'll tell you that. Like, yeah, you, you, you let some ego get in and then you try to stuff that down. You know, it's, uh, it, it is the most amazing feeling in the world to, to build a business and then have a, have a decent exit. And uh, somebody loves what you bought enough to pay you cool money for it. You know, like it's uh that's a, that's an amazing feeling. And, uh, and, and you do get some ego and you get some other stuff and uh, you got to make sure you keep that in check. Cause it, that doesn't help anybody. I, uh, you know, when I was building done, I was like, all right, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go back into tech and uh, I'm just going to tell myself every day that um, I have tons to learn there's nothing definitive, you know, I know nothing definitive about anything, right? Like I'm always open for new perspectives. I'm always open to learning new things every single day. Um, there's always gaps that I have to fill. And so it's, it's just a continual learning process, always, always, always. And so that was one of the things I think that helped make Dunn successful is that uh, we didn't pretend we knew everything, right? Like let's, let's pretend we don't know anything and let's go learn what we don't know. And let's, let's check our assumptions every day. And I, I think that that helps, uh, helps a lot. This is probably a difficult question to answer, but if you could identify anything that 
you know, even back to your, you know, when, when you heard about the Virginia Tech shooting and your first thought was like, oh, somebody, I could, I could build that. Like I could build an emergency notification services yeah. company. And, you know, you go down the list of things and, and then you actually built them, even though that those didn't take off and then done, you, you try to book a, a maintenance guy online. It didn't work. So you build a company. Can you identify anything other than it's just embedded in your DNA? Like what allows you to just have these ideas and then make something happen out of them where so many people get caught up in these like mental battles of overthinking maybe, or, you know, fear or whatever else it is. Like, can you identify any, anything that helped? I mean, you know what, like looking back on, uh, on my childhood and, and uh, when I was a young adult, I always had a really high, uh, I was always okay with a large amount of risk, right? Like I, I had a, I had, I just did risky stuff and I was okay with it. Right. Like probably like any teenager or whatever, I, I probably did more risky stuff, but so I, I was, I was able to, uh, accept, uh, accept risks. So, I, um, I've like failing sucks. Like nobody wants to fail, but, uh, it's, it's not a failure to build a business and like the business not work. Right. Like it's not, it's not this old school, like uh, boomer generation thing where, you know, you, you fell in your business and it, it's, you have this stick, there's a stigma around that, right? Like it's, dude, like most of the guys that have made it have tried any number of startups, you know, like it's, uh, it, it's way different to try to build a, uh, a digital business, uh, technology business that has the ability to scale across the country. Or um, even if you want to open a, a cat bar, you know, like to, for people to bring your cats in, it's, it's just about, it's about the journey and, and what you learn and how you use that on the next business. It's never, ever, ever about that one business that you're currently working on. So like, who cares if you swing and strike out, right? Like, yeah, it sucks like bad at that time, but you're probably going to have nuggets of, of, of learnings that you're going to be able to use in the future. And, you know, at this point in my life, it's not even about what I did at Dawn or what I did at Porch. It's like I'm 41, uh, 42 years old, just turned 42. Like, I'm not like going to build businesses. Like, let's just, let's do this. It's fun. Like it, it's about the people you work with and the customers you help and like the, the revenue you're providing people that, that work for you. And it's cool. Like you make friends and have fun and like, you're not doing boring stuff. Right? That's, I feel like if people can get that in their head, you know, just even understanding about that, like, Oh yeah, it's, it is, it's okay. It, it's not about that endpoint you know if you can just get okay with the idea that maybe it doesn't work and then just deal with whatever happens um but instead of getting caught up in this headspace of trying to picture the end result when like you would have never even been able to picture how done would have finished you started it as something completely different no for sure i, I definitely think like uh like you 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 want to fail and you want to fail fast right like if it's not going to work like let's fail this thing quick so we can move on let's not like get caught in this zombie land of of and waste time time's the only you know really the only resource that we have that we can't replenish and and so it's it's important to fail and fail fast and uh, what was that what was the follow-up question on that i'm sorry i i think i was just saying like I don't know if it was a question. I was just saying it's it's interesting if you can just even just hearing people like you talk about that. I think that's yeah. useful because it, people can sort of identify with that. 
Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, everybody's going to fail. Like, you know what I mean? You hear everybody here is like, uh, you know, the best batter, baseball batters in the world, they strike out more than they, you know, they hit, right? Like, and I, I try to, my, I have two small sons right now and an even smaller daughter, but my sons are playing baseball and they get super upset when they don't hit the ball. But like, dude, it's about, it's about swinging. It's not about like anything else. It's just about doing it. Like, and maybe your skill set right now doesn't build you an awesome company, but you're building that skill set that's going to layer upon itself. And if you just don't give up, you're going to build an awesome company. So what are you doing now? So uh, I put together a fund. We are uh, very carefully buying businesses that we think uh, we have the talent to recognize uh, opportunities um, in that business that aren't being taken advantage of. And so I I own a business right now that's in the uh, CMBS space, which is commercial mortgage-backed security space, um, which is loans on, uh, there's a lot of loans on, hospitality, like hotels and uh, office space, multifamily, um, those types of properties. And I think it's a one in a, you know, it's a generational event that we have going on right now because of COVID with commercial real estate. And so I bought this business uh, to take advantage of uh, the distress that is going on in that that industry. And so we're looking uh, right now, we're, uh, we're solely focused on hotels, uh, we're looking at aggregating a uh, portfolio of distressed hotels and either operating them or selling them out. Oh. Well, pretty confident you're going to do well. You have, you're just, I think you're built for this and you've been battle tested. I think a good amount at this point. So I'm excited to see what happens with you here. Awesome. Yeah. It's uh it's always exciting, right? Like in uh, we may, uh, we may fail again, but we're not always going to fail every time. And that wraps up our conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Ben is the model of what can happen if you've got talent and you decide to take action. And he's just done it over and over and over again. And despite having a few startup failures, came back for a third swing and obviously paid off very well. So I hope you enjoy this talk as much as I did. Another thing I'm enjoying is getting messages from people who made it to the end of the interview. I think in one of my early episodes, maybe the first episode I mentioned, if you made it this far, send me a screenshot with your favorite quote from the office. And I'm still getting messages and makes my day every time. So if you made it this far in the interview, let me know your thoughts on sort of the change of pace here from interviewing people in the health space to now sort of the entrepreneurial startup route, all of it bleeds into the same thing. And so I hope this was useful and entertaining and I will see you all on the next one.